Hello and welcome to the Sandro Forte podcast. Over the many years I've been running a business, I've met many, many successful people, entrepreneurs, sports stars, celebrities, and dare I say, even royalty. So what makes a person successful? Do we know what success is? And the all-important question, can we create success for ourselves? This podcast series invites a diverse group of people to share their insights, their wisdom, and the things they've learned along the way. Mary Fenwick started her career as a radio and television journalist before moving into corporate public affairs, where she specialised in the relationships between business and government. Her expertise in cross-sectoral networks led her to become the founder chair in the UK for what has become New Zealand's most successful expat network. But much of what Mary does today and the success she has achieved started when her husband, Will, sadly died unexpectedly in 2008. As a consequence of this, she trained as an executive coach to take on his clients and build on his track record of supporting women in leadership roles. I'm particularly honoured, and I don't say that lightly, to have the incredibly wonderful Mary Fenwick as our Sandro Forte podcast guest today. Mary, welcome to the show. Thank you, Sandro. Well, we go back a long way, don't we? So tell yeah. us a bit. I know a lot about you, but many people don't. Uh, and that's only because you're the world's best kept secret. So tell us a little bit more about Mary Fenwick, if you would. <laughs> well, Sandra, you and I go back to last millennium, I think. <laughs> we uh, do. Yeah. <laughs> so I'm originally from New Zealand and I was a journalist, a radio journalist and worked in television and print. Um, I've been living in the UK since 1990. I have four English children, and um, my work continues to be all around um, how people talk to each other and get things done. Wow. Okay. So, um, you've packed up, but there's there's a lot more to you than this. We're gonna we're gonna coax this out of you today, Matt. If that's all right. Um, let Let's start with probably the most difficult part of your life, if you don't mind. I'm going to yeah. dive into the deep end. Um, look, I know what happened to, to Will has left a, a deep scar, unsurprisingly. So I hope you don't mind me asking you, you know, about what happened specifically, you know, both before and then what happened afterwards. And then we'll, we'll start to talk a little bit about, you know, um, the success you've achieved as a result, I guess, of many of those things that did happen. So yeah. um, the events leading up to Will's passing and and what happened subsequently? Mm. Well, um, I need to go slightly, well, a bit further back than that. Um, Will and I had got together. Um, it was pretty messy. Um, he and I were both married to other people when we got together. Um, we both got divorced and remarried. Um, and we were, we had made the decision that we were going to we had four children between us, and we always used to talk about our children. You know, we didn't talk about your children, my children. Um, but the way it, that family was comprised is that I'd, I had three children and Will had a daughter, Polly. Um, <clears throat> Will was really um, a phenomenal person, so I'm just always really happy to have a chance to talk about him. He was um, a kind of... On the surface, a typical public schoolboy, typical English public schoolboy. Um, he'd been to public school. He went to both Oxford and Cambridge. Um, he was very sporty. He was a he had a blue. He'd you know represented Cambridge at football. Um, 
But that was really, if that was sort of the framework, the picture of Will as a person was really very different. Um, he was incredibly emotionally intelligent um, and had a deep desire to kind of get get stuck into the nitty gritty of um, relationships between people uh, in their private lives and in their work lives. And so people at work would encounter this person who looked like he was a straight-laced person wearing the right tie, like literally he I used to joke he knew the language of ties. Um, <laughs> um, my kind of guy, Mary, my kind of guy. <laughs> um, but what they got was somebody who um, actually one of the things he said to me was um, <clears throat> we were discussing whether or not he might work with a particular individual and he said to me, I don't know, do you think she's going to be willing to cry? though, because nearly always when people worked with him, uh, they'd cry. (laughs) And uh, that included, you know, he worked a lot with people in sort of construction, railways, infrastructure projects. He was working, for example, on um, a multinational project to build a motorway in Romania. And his work was all what people would call the soft skills but uh, people find those soft skills much, much harder than they expect. Yeah. And so yeah, that's the kind of work that Will was doing. So Will and I had been together for nine years um, because of the slightly messy start. We'd been married for five. Our children were aged 13, 12, 10, and eight. Um, Will had got back into running marathons and he was one of these people who was so determined that he was actually getting faster at running marathons as he got older. So in 2007, he achieved his lifetime goal of a sub three hour marathon in the London Marathon. But um, less than a year later, by the time the marathon rolled around again in 2008, he was dead. Uh, he died of thyroid cancer, which is normally a very treatable cancer, you know, 95% of thyroid cancers are what they call, um, you know, one of the best types of cancer you can have if you're going to bother. (laughs) Uh, But his was not, unfortunately. And um, we were in the unusual combination of he died relatively suddenly of cancer. So it was not a scenario where there was some treatment and you get a chance to recover and put your, you know, affairs in order, as it were, it was much more like falling off a cliff. Um, At a certain point, uh, Will never wanted to know timescales, but at a certain point I was told that he probably had six months and that he had less than six weeks at that point. Um, So it was a a terrible shock and he was only 44 when he died. Yeah, so it was a shocking, shocking death. Uh, wow! Yeah. So, um, the four children. I, I, I love the fact that you refer to them as our children. And you know, on on this podcast, Mary, we have you know a diverse range of guests. And um, you know, your CV reads businesswoman, speaker, mum, wife. And one of the things that I picked up from a TED talk you gave, I believe, in two thousand and fifteen, 
And I, I remember you starting with the words, I don't want to be too uh, controversial about this, but you are quite pro-divorce. And just yeah. to, to touch on what you said earlier, you know, you, you started out and I'll use your word messy, but, mm-hmm. you know, what you're saying is you embrace the fact that sometimes these things happen and you shouldn't live in an uncomfortable or unhappy situation, which many people do because they don't know how to deal with the situation. And what you de- did is dealt with it head on and, and, and made a conscious decision, both of you, to, to go in a different direction. Yeah. The reason I would say I'm pro-divorce is I think it's a really important fundamental freedom, um, particularly for women, but I also definitely do know men who are trapped in really unhappy relationships. Um, In a way, I think if you don't have divorce, it sort of devalues marriage because um, you've got to have a choice. Otherwise, you know, marriage is just a trap. And marriage is a human choice and human beings make mistakes, unfortunately. And um, I did a lot of research, for example, for uh, a book about divorce, which never got published. And part of the reason it didn't get published was because I was being too positive about divorce. I'm not, you know, I'm not saying go and get divorced on a whim. And that's one of the myths, you know, if anything, most people who um, are getting divorced have probably stayed in an unhappy relationship and let it slide for too long. Um, there is still a huge social stigma about divorce, and anybody who thinks that there isn't has not been divorced. It's horrible. It's a horrible process, uh, but sometimes it's necessary. Yeah, <laughs> that's what I would say. And I, you know, Mary, I know that, um, and if you don't mind me prizing this out of you, because as I said, you have so such a diverse range of life experiences, taking on, um, you know, you had your own children, but obviously you took on wills, which you um, beautifully refer to as yours. Polly, who I know very well, who's turned into a lovely, lovely girl. I mean, what advice would you give to parents who perhaps have got children from former relationships and how easy or difficult is it? What are the... What are the observations that you have in terms of knitting a a family or two families together? Mm. Well, one of the things that I found out after Will died was that um, he probably died just at the point at which our blended family was really um, only just becoming solid because it takes longer than anybody imagines. It takes between five and seven years for a reformed family to do all that it needs to do. Um, Because when you reform as a family, there's a whole, you know, you have to go through this whole cycle of the the birthdays, the anniversaries, Christmas, the school year, all that stuff. Um, Every time you go through it, it's like the first time for you as a family and you're having to renegotiate. And it really does take quite a long time for those things to um, to become less uh, less difficult. I don't really know how else to put it. Um, in my particular situation, there's many elements of my story, as you rightly point out, Sandro, which are so kind of dramatic that sometimes I don't talk about them because they sound um, like a movie script, really. But one of the elements of my situation is that um, when Will died, I had never met 
his first wife and I met her for the first time in the hospice less than a week before Will died. And that was the point at which uh, decisions were being made about, you know, what was our future going to be as a family. And so I got kind of flung into co-parenting with another woman who um, had no time for me. You know, she really thoroughly dislikes me as a person and she blames me for the breakup of her marriage. Uh, But she was willing to work with what her daughter wanted. And uh, Polly was being really explicit about this. So Polly and I had had a conversation where um, we'd said to each other that the worst thing would be not only losing Will, but losing each other as well and losing this family that we'd built up. So from Polly's point of view, she'd been so young when our family got together. She didn't really remember a time before that. And she, my, those four children refer to each other as siblings, you know, their brother and sister. They don't refer to each other as step anything. Um, so I was always working to, from my point of view, to maintain what we had. But in terms of how you um, build that from the start, um, it, it's respect is the main thing. And I think we sometimes get confused in English when we say that you're a step-parent or a stepmother, and we hear the mother element of it. But in French, for example, the word for a stepmother is exactly the same word as for a mother-in-law. Mm. And in English culture, we understand that the mother-in-law relationship takes a lot of negotiation and a lot of sort of gentle um, approach and mutual respect. And I think that's a really useful thing to bear in mind for those step relationships as well. Yeah. Wow. That's um, that's a very interesting insight. And I'm going to just uh, take one step back. And, and again, we're not going to use this as a platform uh, on which to discuss uh, people and uh, and former relationships, but We've known each other for a very long time, and I can attest to the fact that, number one, and the reason I'm asking you some of these more difficult questions is because you're right. I think it probably would, to some people, seem like they were reading a, a book and, and certainly not a factual one. Um, but I can attest to the fact that this is all entirely true. I can also attest to the fact that you are, whatever the word for polar opposite of dislikable person, uh, <laughs> you, you are that person. So um, I have to disagree with Will's former, former wife on that one. Um, and I think that the important message for many people, Mary, that comes out of what you've just said is that just because someone doesn't like you for whatever reason, and they, and they have their own reasons, it doesn't change who you are as a person. And, you know, you have remained wholly consistent through this period. And I think that's the reason why that family has stayed together as it has. So um, I know you'd be too modest to say any of those things. So I thought I'd say them for you. I also know from, from our relationship that you've had a lot of tough times. I mean, not just Will's death, but you know, bringing up the kids, career uh, challenges. Do you have a kind of a fundamental way of dealing with life's challenges? Because you're now, you know, a very successful coach and a speaker, and you share a lot of those thoughts and ideas with other people. How, how does Mary Fennick deal with life's challenges? General question. Yeah. Well, one of the things we haven't talked about is the fact that I write this agony art column for Psychologies magazine. So, um, each month I'm in the position of giving other people advice, <laughs> which is a bit ironic because basically I don't think advice works. I think listening to people and supporting them to come to their own, you know, to find their own resources, that's what works. 
So the resources that I would turn to again and again and again are um, finding a way to put whatever the problem is into words. That sounds simple, but it's not always simple. What I notice when people write to me um, at Psychologies Magazine is the way they describe the problem is often only, uh, it might be their first attempt to describe what the problem is. And until you are describing what's going on accurately, you don't really find the right solution. You, you're not sort of getting to the right diagnosis and the right treatment if you use a medical model. So the first challenge is usually getting really clear about what's going on. And it's you might be feeling something, you might be blaming some circumstance, um, you might be blaming some person, but it's to get really clear about what you're feeling and what you think is, you know, your best attempt at what at saying what's going on. And for me, that would nearly always involve talking to somebody else about it. It might involve writing as well. You know, I'm I'm a writer. I find journaling really helpful. Um, yeah, but finding right words for what's going on is my first step. I'm also the other. I've just had to do this for Psychology's magazine, actually, reflect on what the sort of the nub of my advice would be. And, and for me, it's probably the, the three R's. <laughs> and the first one is reverse the focus. Uh, look for what's going right rather than what's going wrong because the, the bad things are always right in your face. They demand attention and we, our brains are set up that way. But if you can possibly... Um, Take a tiny step back, as you said, and look for what's going right. And um, in there's a book called Switch by Chip and Dan Heath, and they talk about uh, moving towards the bright spots. So I'd agree with that. Reverse the focus, look for what's going right, see how you can move towards what's going well. Then my next R is about relationships. Who are the good, trustworthy, people in your life who will just listen to you and support you while you flail around in the chaos. <laughs> and the third one is about your resources. It's reminding yourself of similar situations you might have faced in the past. Um, how, how do they help you now? Is this somewhere that you already know what you need? Do you need to learn something new? Um, or do you need to apply something that you already know? And even applying what you already know can be hard and maybe you need support for that. But, yeah, those are my, yeah, put, putting it into the right words, looking at reversing the focus, your relationships and your existing resources and any other resources that you do need. And uh, I don't, you don't know this, I don't think, but I subscribe to the magazine. And uh, I, love, I love reading your articles. I learned so much from them and everything you've just said is absolutely right. So I would encourage uh, the tens of thousands of listeners to do exactly the same because you can pick up such a lot from Mary's column. It's, it's really, really good. Um, Mary, I'm going to switch tact a little bit because uh, if we had two or three hours, I'd be, I'd be uh, delving deeper into all these different subject matters. But I just want to take you back based on a lot of your experience of working at the Whitehall and Industry Group uh, with your lovely anacronym wig. Uh, let's talk about politics, very topical at the moment. I mean, what on earth is going wrong? You know, we, yeah. <laughs> um, with, without, without jumping on the political bandwagon, uh, why is there such a disconnect between politicians and the common man? 
Uh, are you talking specifically in the UK at the moment? I think so. Yeah, I think that has more resonance. Although we, we you know, we listen to in 35 countries here, but uh, I, I think whatever's going wrong in the UK, there's some resonance elsewhere. Mm. Um, actually, just to take a leaf out of my own book, Sandro, I would like to, first of all, look at what's going right. <laughs> and uh, among the things that are going right are that more people understand that politics um, is not something that happens in the distant sort of in the long grass somewhere over there and that we can leave to politicians. We all have a responsibility. It's part of our kind of role as adults to step up into some form of public life and making things better, not just for our families. I really believe this, but we all do have some responsibility to our wider society and to get ourselves informed about issues and to take actions that in our view will make the world a better place. So I take it as a positive that so many more people care about politics my degree originally in the 1980s was in history and politics. So I've been a politics nerd for, you know, literally decades. And it's been a, nobody's wanted to talk about politics. They've talked about it in really um, superficial party political tribal terms. And what I, I actually find it really exciting in the UK that I think that two party system is breaking down. I personally am very pro um, some form of proportional representation. And that's partly because, as I say, I've got dual nationality, New Zealand, the UK. Um, and in New Zealand, we've got mixed member um, proportional representation. And I, I think it works better because it forces people to be in conversations and in negotiations in the open all the time, not having arguments and doing secret deals, but you have to be pretty transparent about, you know, what your trade-offs are. So, yeah, the, the positives I see about what's going on are people are getting more involved in politics. Mm. That I think that two-party system, I don't think that's productive. I don't think it's useful to say you can think one way or the other and that's your only choice. Mm. I also think that... The whole process of the way our democracy is functioning is the way it's supposed to function. We have an independent judiciary. We have independent journalists. Um, we have an executive form of government, which is the prime minister and cabinet. But we also have parliament, which is the kind of broader representation. I think it's extremely dangerous to try and draw a divide between the people and the parliament. But if we go back to the kind of roots of where this issue comes from in the UK, on, on one level, it's a deeply emotional issue. And one of the reasons I um, hesitate to talk about it is because I'm not British by birth. This is not an identity crisis for me, which I think it is for many British people who only have that nationality. Mm -hmm. um, if you look at Britain's relationship with Europe, over like a thousand years, it's it's different. It's different from being in mainland Europe. And if you look at it over the last 50 years with this whole process of Britain becoming closer to Europe, um, there's been a solid, say, 35 to 40% of people who've never bought into this European project. And I do, when I reflect on the history, I get 
that they will have felt ignored. And again, I do believe that some form of proportional representation which would allow the nuance of these discussions to emerge over time would have been helpful. Uh, sorry, anything else? I can, I'm, uh, just, no, I'm, I'm sat here in awe. Um, and I think what you've just said in the last two or three minutes will help a lot of people to make a good deal of sense of, of, of what's going on and help them to form a few views, which I think is going to be very important in terms of moving forward. So thank you for sharing that. Um, I'm going to also ask you, if I may, Mary, about your, uh, you know, the rebirth of, of Mary Fennick in some respects, because, um, you know, wig, Will's passing, bringing up a family. But now, you know, you're a very successful executive coach. You've found your way onto the speaking circuit. I've been in the audience and listened to you on a number of occasions. And I remember very vividly that TED talk in 2015, where you talk a lot about transformation. And the reason I just want to um, circle back and ask you again about the, the process of transformation in one's life is simply because we get loads and loads of emails from people who say, you know, here I am in a place in my life. I'm stuck. I'm in a hole. I don't know how to deal with it. I listen to a speaker or a guest on the podcast and I, it's very difficult to associate with them because they're so far ahead of where I want to be um, that I can't really see the wood for the trees. You know, kudos to them. They've become successful. They've overcome it all, but they're not close enough for me to help me really get off the starting line. So in terms of your work with people who are a bit stuck, what, what are the first few steps that people can think about taking? We've, we've heard about the three R's. But at a more fundamental level, Mary, what, what are the things that people can look to do to deal with the problems that are right in front of them? Mm. Yeah. I, I mean, I'm dealing with that a lot as well. I mean, that, that's often what people are writing to me at the magazine about. Being stuck is a really horrible feeling. <laughs> um, yeah. And I, also, but it's lovely of you to say all that stuff, Sandro, but I'm constantly in a process of reinvention I would say I certainly don't feel that I've made it um one well, of the if, if I can help you with that that it was a sort of rhetorical question because I I obviously know so much about you mm. and I think really what you started to give me then was the answer I was looking for which was you know just because people perceive us as being successful doesn't necessarily mean behind closed doors that that's what goes on in someone's life. They just are successful to the outside world because they seem to deal with the problem better than anyone else. Well, yeah, or maybe that's just what you, what you see in public. You know, one example is Easter Sunday this year, I spent a big chunk of the day in tears because um, a whole heap of stuff had come up for me about my children, about my relationship with their biological dad, about Will's death, um, you know, it doesn't go away. I think this is one of the things that people um, people misunderstand about bereavement in general is they have this idea that you move on. You, you don't really. You know, I would still have days that I am devastated and crippled by Will's death and, you know, feel stuck because of that fact alone, feel angry and frustrated that he's not here, miss him so much I can't even put it into words. Um, those, those times are, you know, more spread out now and maybe there's been, as you said, a bit more scar tissue stab me. There are times where the pain does stab me just as deeply. Mm. 
one of the things that has helped me, and I hope this doesn't sound too, um, I don't know, too, too spiritual in a way, but there was a long time after Will died where I felt like Will dying was my life going fundamentally wrong, um, that his death was wrong in the universe. And I've come around to thinking it's not that I can ever say it's right. You know, I, I can't say, oh, it's marvellous he died. But I can say it is part of life. Absolutely horrible things do happen, and yet we keep going. Um, in Churchill's words, we keep buggering on. Yeah. <laughs> um, and as long as we can find people to talk to about that, the, the number one thing we can do is connect. That's our number one human need is to connect with other people. And our vulnerability is what connects us. So I do know that part of the reason I, I do get feedback that people trust me and they want to talk to me. And I know that's true as a journalist and as a coach. I can't force anybody to talk to me, but people want to talk to me. Mm. And one of the reasons that people want to talk to me is because they know I've been through some horrible stuff and yet I'm still standing. And some days that's all I can say. I'm, I'm still standing. Oh, that, and well said. Mary, what's your proudest achievement? If you've even thought about it, and I'm sorry to put you on the spot oh, with that. Well, no, it's definitely uh, my children. You know, having having um, four children who are currently mostly on their own paths, and that and that they still all want to talk to me. <laughs> I, I feel incredibly proud of that. Just yeah. so, yeah. <laughs> As you should. Uh, how do we find out more about you, Mary? Because I could go on chatting to you for hours and hours and hours, as as I often have the privilege of doing when we uh, when we embark on our little two person theatre club outings, which is a whole different story, and we won't waste any time on that one on the podcast. But um, how do we find out more about you? That obviously we can look you up TEDx talk, but tell us about your coaching website, social media, anything like that. Yeah, um, I'm on um, Instagram at Mary Vafenik. I'm on Twitter at MJ Fennick. And my website is maryfennick.com. It's spelled Fenwick, like the shop in Bond Street. Mm -hmm. um, but a lot of my work at the moment is through an organization which is called Teams and Leadership. It's literally all those words together, teamsandleadership.com. Um, and that, Sandro, I haven't even gone into it, but that's me working with the man who was Will's coach and uh, developing a whole um, a whole area of expertise around teams and leadership, exactly as it says on the tin. And I'm finding that massively rewarding at the moment. Wow, good for you. So, Mary, final question. We ask all our guests the same one, just to close things off. Uh, based on all of that amazing, and I use the word amazing uh, to incorporate the highs and the lows, but based on all that experience of life, there's a young Mary Fennick. She's 16 years, 17 years of age, much like the conversations you've had with your children. And they say, OK, mum, I'm just about to embark on my own life, going to go out in the, into the big wide world. What one piece of advice could you give me that would set me off on the right foot? Yeah, I, I did think about this, Sandra. And um, initially, I thought this advice particularly, it, it does particularly apply to girls, but um, it applies to men as well. Pick your partner. Pick your partner wisely. Um, pick somebody who wants you to be the whole of you. Um, don't pick somebody with whom you feel you have to knock off your own edges. 
That is a lovely, lovely answer. And the, in in the uh, in the year that these podcasts have been going, because this is our one year anniversary, uh, so you you get the honour of being our one year anniversary guest. Aww. That is the first time anyone has ever mentioned relationships. So I think that's a very very nice way to summarise everything that's gone before in the last fifty two weeks. So thank you. That's a that's a really good answer. I have to say. Um, Mary Fenwick, it's been a real joy. I'm sorry we've not had longer, but I'm sure there'll be a part two at some point. But um, for your friendship, uh, for who you are as a person, all you've achieved and will continue to achieve, no doubt. Uh, thank you so much for joining us today on the Sandro 14 podcast and for sharing so much. Thank you, Sandro. It's been a pleasure. Well, that was the Sandro Forte podcast. And wasn't Mary Fenwick absolutely fantastic? Remember, Every week, just like the last 52, there are lots more fantastic guests joining me over the coming weeks. So please make sure you subscribe if you want more great tips on success and, of course, overcoming life challenges. Remember, it's Sandro's podcast. That's Sandro's with an S. It is extraordinary the number of people who send emails unable to find us because they leave the S off. So just a little reminder, make sure you join us next week. Until then, bye for now.